Come and see, come and see, come and see the King of Love. See the purple robe and crown of thorns he wears. Soldiers mock, rulers sneer as he lifts the cruel cross. Lone and friendless, now he climbs towards the hill. We worship at your feet, where wrath and mercy meet, and the guilty world is washed by love's pure stream.
Well, good evening. Uh, again, it's really good uh, to see you uh, physically. <laughs> it's great to, to have uh, everyone together. Uh, we're going to begin our time of worship uh, with some words from Psalm 89, verses 1 and 2. And we'll stand together as a congregation and read these words together. And after we have read them, if we take our seats, and then we'll have our first hymn. So let's stand uh, for the reading of God's word. And read these words together. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. Jesus the Nazarene 
Well, the song we've just sung speaks about the, the marvelous and wonderful love uh, that God has for us, and we see that demonstrated most clearly, uh, of course, on the cross. And in Matthew's Gospel, we're leading uh, towards that uh, as we go through uh, chapters uh, 26 and 27. Uh, but as we go through that, um, we see Jesus expressing himself uh, in terms of language we read in the Psalms. Uh, So tonight, for example, we're going to see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, a place where he is overwhelmed with sorrow. Uh, We can read about these kind of experiences that God's people go through uh, and that Jesus went through, uh, through the Psalms. And we're going to read one of those now, uh, Psalm 42. So if you can turn there uh, in your Bibles, uh, and Chris is going to come uh, and read uh, Psalm 42 for us. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food 
day and night, while men say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. This is God's word. Well, let's turn to God in prayer uh, with those words in our minds. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you how the Psalms uh, give us words to pray when sometimes we don't even know how to pray or we, we can't express the words that we want to say. And many of us sometimes feel like the psalmist in saying, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? We thank you for the, the rawness of your word, which shows that our experiences have always been the experiences of your people. But we also thank you that you are not a distant God, uh, sending words that are uh, meaningless to you, but you are a God who has come down into our suffering and you are a God who understands these words better than any of us because Jesus was downcast and Jesus was disturbed. We read that Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow. We thank you that you understand how we feel because you have felt all that we feel and more. But more than this, we thank you that Jesus suffered for us, that we can be forgiven of all our sins through his death in our place. And so because of Jesus, we can truly, as we've read in this psalm, put our hope in you. We can truly praise you because you truly are our Savior and our God. And we look forward to the time when our souls will be downcast and disturbed no more 
We look forward to the time when we will be with you forever. And we thank you that we have that hope because Jesus has taken our place on the cross and is risen from the dead. And so we pray that you would give this hope to your people this week. We pray for people suffering in ways that we don't know. People who are in mental anguish. People who often suffer in secret. And we pray this week for those who are facing trials that we do know about. Uh, We pray again uh, for John and Carol Whitehouse. We pray that their um, chemotherapy this week would prove successful. We pray that you would be near to them, especially tomorrow as they go. We pray again for Pat Salt, that she would get some clarity on her treatment. And we continue to pray for Elsie, that she would recover well from her operation and that you would restore her to health and strength again. But more than the physical welfare of these uh, sisters in Christ, we pray for them and for all of us that our hope, that their hope, would be fixed on you, our Saviour and our God, the one who has given us hope. And we pray all of these things in the mighty name of our Saviour, of our God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
If you uh, can open your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 26, and tonight we're going to be uh, in verses 36 uh, down to verse 56, Matthew 26, verse 36 to 56. Uh, As we come to this uh, part of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is preparing for the cross and is preparing his disciples for the trial that is also uh, to come upon them. So last week, uh, we saw that Jesus told his disciples what is coming. Uh, We saw that there was suffering overhead. Uh, Jesus told his disciples that they're all going to fall away on account of him. Uh, But we also saw that the shepherd will overcome. So Jesus will rise again and go ahead of them into Galilee. But the day of trial has arrived. Uh, Jesus said he and his disciples are going to be tested this very night. And really up to verse 56, where we're going to end this evening, uh, we see the preparation for the trial just before Jesus is arrested this night. And what Matthew is making clear as we come to read these verses is the, the contrast between Jesus and his disciples in how they are preparing for this trial that is coming this very night. So last week we looked more at the disciples, uh, because after hearing that the suffering is overhead, and that the shepherd will overcome, we saw that the servants were overconfident. Uh, Peter especially had said that he'll never disown Jesus, if you remember. But this passage uh, last week ended in verse 36, with all the other disciples saying the same thing. They were all overconfident. They all thought this is going to be a walk in the park. And tonight, this this contrast between Jesus' preparation and his disciples continues as we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But before we come to this passage, which uh, is is really deep, um, uh, it's an amazing passage of Scripture, uh, let's bow our heads and pray. Uh, I want to ask God to really help us as we look at this Uh, this passage of scripture. Let's bow our heads. Uh, There's actually a a hymn um, where the chorus reads this, which is my prayer for us all tonight. It says, oh, help me understand it. Help me to take it in what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us tonight to understand just a bit more what you have done for us so that we can stand in the final trial of death and in the other trials that we face and that we would live for you alone. Amen. Well, let's read from verse 36 down to 56 of of this chapter. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, 
My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, May your will be done. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This is God's word. Now, all of us, I think, are familiar with being uh, examined in some way in our lives. Uh, Normally, around this time of year, uh, students are studying for their GCSEs and A-levels. And whilst we may not have exams officially, um, I have since found that there are exams for some of our students, and they should be revising uh, for their exams because an examination is coming, a test is arriving, and so they need to prepare. Uh, We're familiar with driving tests and having to get ready for that. Uh, Those of you that are uh, sporty, 
uh, know that you can't just wake up one morning and run a marathon, that you need to prepare in order to run a marathon or do any kind of sport. There is training, isn't there? So we're familiar with the concept of examinations, of needing to prepare for those exams before they arrive. And verses 31 to 56 of this chapter are the preparation for the trial that is coming for Jesus and his disciples. And we see here the contrast between Jesus and those disciples in their preparation. The disciples have been overconfident and they do not understand, therefore, what is coming. Jesus, on the other hand, he comprehends what's ahead. He understands what is coming, and we see this in Gethsemane because first of all, uh, we see as he prepares uh, a number of aspects to this trial. Uh, In fact, we're going to see five aspects to the trial uh, in these verses tonight. And first of all, we see Jesus. We see that he understands what is coming because for him, the sorrow is overwhelming, So in verse 36, Jesus goes to Gethsemane to pray. Now the disciples are confident in their abilities, but Jesus, the Son of God, he depends on his Father. And he shows that dependence by praying. Uh, John chapter 18 and verse 2 tells us that Gethsemane was a place where Jesus often went to pray with his disciples. And the Garden of Gethsemane is an olive grove. In fact, Gethsemane means oil press. And it was a place where olives were pressed for their oil. And it was here that Jesus, the Son of God, is pressed himself as he prepares for the trial that he is about to face as he saves his people from their sins. And so Jesus goes into this garden and he asks his disciples in verse 37 to sit down while he goes deeper in in order to pray. And he leaves eight disciples in one place and with three of his disciples, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he goes a bit farther in. It seems that Jesus wants some companions with him while he prays in his sorrow. And Peter, James, and John are often uh, the three disciples that are closest to Jesus that go with him, uh, for example, as they did on the Mount of Transfiguration. Look with me at the middle of verse 37, as Jesus is with these three men. It says, And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. There is a sorrow here that is so overwhelming, it is almost killing Jesus. Why is Jesus feeling this way? Well, I think there is a depth here that we cannot possibly fathom. Language cannot do justice, really, to what Jesus is feeling here. It's it's not even possible, I think, to exaggerate the sorrow that Jesus undergoes at this point. Never was so much sorrow felt 
by a single person. It wasn't just the physical pain that was coming that Jesus felt this this great sorrow over, although that was part of it. It wasn't just that he was going to be beaten and mocked, although that would have been part of it. It wasn't just the humiliation of hanging naked on a cross, although that would have been part of it. It wasn't even only the falling away of the disciples that he knew was coming, although, of course, that was part of it. All of that was going to be awful, and Jesus knew that it was coming, and it did contribute to this sorrow, but there's more here than those things. Because Jesus had never sinned. Jesus, unlike any other man in history, had never felt the guilt and the shame that sin brings. Jesus was always faithful. Jesus had never once faced the displeasure of his Father. He had always been in perfect communion with his Father from eternity. And Jesus knew that he was going to die for our sins. He was going to suffer in our place. And so he was going to suffer all the guilt and all of the shame for our sins. Guilt and shame that he had never experienced before. Now we feel guilt and shame over our sin. We understand some of what that feels like. But we only feel the guilt and shame of what we know about Jesus is bearing all of our sins, even the stuff we don't know about. But when we feel guilt and shame, we only feel guilt and shame over our sin. Multiply that beyond measure because Jesus is bearing all the guilt and all the shame of all his people over all of time. And unlike us, Jesus knows the wickedness of sin in a way that we can't possibly perceive. And all of that is going to be laid on him. He's not just going to be treated like a sinner, although he is going to be treated like a sinner. He will actually feel that he has sinned. All of our sin, of all of God's people, of all of time, is going to be bearing down on Jesus. And because our sin is being imputed to Jesus, the perfectly obedient, perfectly faithful Son of God, who has always been in perfect relationship with his Father, Jesus will experience his Father forsaking him. And Jesus will experience the full measure of the wrath of God being poured out against him. And Jesus knows the wrath of God. He knows what that means because he is God. So he fully and completely understands what is coming against him. And that's why he says, 
that the sorrow is overwhelming. Now before we move on from those words, just pause for a moment and think of the cost of the forgiveness of our sins, of my sins, of your sins. This is what we mean. This is what the Bible means when the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Just think of that love. The love of God for you and for me. That he would be overwhelmed with this kind of sorrow. But, but seeing Jesus overwhelmed with sorrow doesn't just help us to understand the extent of our sin and the greatness of his love. It helps us in another way. It helps us to know that Jesus understands our sorrow. You know, many of us have felt sorrow and think, no one could possibly understand how I feel. Have you ever felt like that? Sorrow that is so overwhelming for you that you think no one can understand what this feels like. But there is one who does understand. Jesus does. In fact, Jesus is the only person in the history of mankind who can ever truly say, no one understands how I feel. Because we can never understand the depth of his sorrow but he always can understand the depth of ours. Always. The writer to the Hebrews says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. We have a Savior who understands our sorrows and is truly, as we can read in Psalm 34 and verse 18, he is truly close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. If that's how you feel, if you feel crushed in spirit, if you feel overwhelmed with sorrow, know this, Jesus understands how you feel. Jesus is with you. Jesus can help you. Because he was overwhelmed with sorrow. Well, the, the disciples they show their lack of understanding of what's coming by their overconfidence. Jesus shows his perception by his overwhelming sorrow. But if you knew what was coming, which the disciples didn't really understand, you, you might not be overconfident, but what you might do is run away. If you were in Jesus' position, the natural thing for us to do, wouldn't it, would be to, to run away. But Jesus didn't run away because although the sorrow was overwhelming, what we also see at the same time is that the submission is overflowing. 
Rather than retreating, look at verse 39. We read there that Jesus didn't retreat, rather he goes a little farther. Uh, That phrase shows that he is walking towards the trial and pressing into his father in prayer. And Jesus prays here to his father. He falls with his face to the ground, which is in reverence, and a posture of submission. But in that posture of submission has the intimacy to pray, my father. And this is in fact the only time that Jesus uses that possessive pronoun, my, my father. So this is a prayer to the Lord of the whole universe who is over all, who is also my father. And so this is the father who can do anything. That's the, 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 the kind of the point here. And Jesus prays. Look at what he prays in verse 39. If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. So Jesus is praying here for another way, for some other option to save his people from their sins other than the bearing of the full wrath of God. And that's what the cup means here. The cup is a way of describing, it's a metaphor of the wrath of God coming upon him. It's often used in the Old Testament. The point being that you drink what's in the cup and take it upon yourself. That's what the cup means. So he's saying um, to take this cup, the cup of the wrath of God, from me and bring another way of saving my people from their sins. Uh, An illustration here might help us understand what Jesus is meaning when he says, if it is possible. Uh, A few years ago, uh, my family went on holiday to the Isle of Harris, which is an island on the Outer Hebrides. And we got in the car and we put into the sat-nav uh, to go to Uig, which is a funny-sounding name of a place, but the place is at the, the tip of the mainland of the UK. And from Uig, we get the ferry to Tarbert on the Isle of Harris. The problem with our sat-nav was this. The sat-nav takes you the, the shortest route, and the shortest route to Uig was via another ferry. And I didn't know this, was going to happen, but when we were driving, the sat-nav took us to a ferry port, which wasn't Uig, and we didn't have a ferry booked. And so we couldn't get on this ferry. And I realized what had happened, and we were now 100 miles out of the way of where we should be going. We were going to be late for our ferry at Uig. And so I got the map out, and I looked, and I plugged Uig into the sat-nav again, to find the right route that didn't mean I had to go over the ferries. And in Scotland, going through the highlands, there was one road to Uig. It was a long road, and it was a busy road, and I was thinking there was no way I'm going to get this ferry on time. We could only go down this one route. I I was looking for a shorter one, a better route, a different route, but I could only go this one way, and so we drove to Uig. There was no doubting what our destination was going to be, but I was trying to find a different way to there than this one road. And that's what's going on here. The destination, saving his people from their sins, is never in doubt. Jesus isn't saying, 
I'm not going to save my people from their sins. What he is saying is, Father, if there's another route to get to this destination, I'll take it. But there isn't another route. There is only one way to get to the place where Jesus is going. And so he prays, not my will, but yours be done. If there is another way, Jesus wanted it. And I don't think it's reading too much into this to say that there was temptation here from Satan for Jesus to avoid the cross. That's what was going on in chapter 4 of Matthew's gospel. Jesus was tempted by the devil to avoid the cross. And I think that temptation uh, was part of what was being heaped upon him. And I think we see here the humanity of Jesus. No human being would want to suffer as Jesus was going to suffer. We mustn't think ever that because Jesus is God, that somehow he suffered less. In fact, Jesus suffered more than anyone has ever suffered. But although he doesn't want the cross, although he feels the sorrow is overwhelming, he prays, yet not what as I will, but as you will. He doesn't have to like the plan of God, the Father. He doesn't have to want to go through it, but he does submit to the plan. He chooses the plan of his Father over his own comfort. The will of the Father is his number one priority in his life. And there was no other way. The only way that God's people could be saved from their sins was the sinless Son of God taking their place on the cross, bearing God's wrath on their behalf. And Jesus, out of love for his Father and out of love for you and for me, submitted to that will. Now, when we're preparing for trials, we need to follow the example of Jesus here, don't we? We need to be praying in dependence on the Father and submitting our lives to his will, even when we don't like those plans. Even when we would rather God give us a different plan, a different life, a different way. But the disciples... They weren't preparing in the same way as Jesus, were they? Rather than praying and submitting, we see that for them, the sleep was overpowering them. Now, Jesus had asked them in verse 8, keep watch with me. Now, in addition for, for, I think, watching out for the coming arrest, more, Jesus is asking them to pray Pray for themselves and pray for Jesus because they've been told tonight, this very night, a trial is coming. You're all going to fall away. And so Jesus tells them, watch with me, pray with me. I think Jesus taking these three with him shows uh, that as well as praying on our own, we need others to pray and fight with us. Others to watch and pray as we face trials and temptations. And I would ask, have, have you got people in your life to watch and to pray with you? People who know where you are weak and you can ask you questions and pray with you. 
I think maybe while the weather is, is, is getting better, why not go out and walk with people and talk with people and pray with people because you need people in your life who will watch and pray with you. Because if Jesus needs this, of course we do too, don't we? That's part of being a church, that we watch and we pray together. But in verse 40, Jesus doesn't find them watching. Instead, Jesus finds them sleeping. I guess you could say this is the opposite of watching, isn't it? Now, this is not saying that sleep is bad, but there is a time, isn't there, not to be asleep uh, during a sermon being a good example. Uh, but this was one of those times not to be asleep, wasn't it? They'd just been told, this night you're going to all fall away. And so you would think, okay, I'm not going to fall away. I'm, gonna, I'm determined to, to not do that, so I'm going to stay awake tonight, just like Jesus is. Uh, he, in, in the chapters preceding this, when Jesus talks about the second coming, he talks about uh, being ready using the example of a thief coming. If you know the thief is going to come tonight, you're going to stay awake and watch for him or her. And that's the, the kind of thing going on here. Tonight the trial is coming, so don't go to sleep, stay awake. Most nights it's fine to go to sleep, but not tonight. And I think there is here a, a, a metaphor about being alert in our Christian lives, not just sleepwalking through each day, but purposefully living for Jesus, being aware of temptations that come our way. And that's backed up in verse 41. Look at what Jesus says. Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. To, to watch, as we've seen before, when talking about the second coming, is to be alert. And I think we know the times and places where temptation is stronger against us. Perhaps certain times of day or night. Perhaps being with certain people or certain places. Or even being on your own. Uh, perhaps um, being on your own with the internet can be a dangerous thing. You need to watch out for that. If we're watching and we're alert, we can act accordingly, can't we? And praying is part of that alertness. Jesus is telling us here how to prepare for trials and temptations that come our way. We, you know, when, we're not to be watching and praying that we will never suffer or that temptation would never come. Rather, we are watching and praying that we will not fall in the suffering and in the temptation. If we're not prepared, if we're not watching and praying, and we don't have people watching and praying with us, then we are liable to fall. And falling means we, we wander from God rather than run to him in dependence and in faith. A, a lack of prayer will lead to a lack of faith, which leads to failure. We need to be like Jesus here, don't we? Notice in verse 42, what does Jesus do? He prays a second time. He again submits himself to his Father's will. And then Jesus comes back in verse 43, and what does he find? The disciples are asleep again because their eyes are heavy. I think this shows us 
uh, how difficult it is to remain alert and how easier it is to sleep rather than watch. Isn't it easier? I mean, I don't think this is just my experience as a Christian. I think this is the case for all of us. How much easier it is to do almost anything than pray, isn't it? Do you you find the same thing? I can do almost anything and find that easier to do than to, to spend time praying. But in our Christian life, we need to be aware that there will always be an overpowering desire to sleep rather than to watch. It's so much easier to to give up the Christian disciplines of reading our Bibles and praying, of taking time to, to think on the things of God. It's so much easier just to soak in and listen to whatever the culture is telling us and not have to think about it really and not consider whether what we're hearing is right. Those things can lull us to sleep and we can wake up one day and we can realize that our life has just gone by and we have slept through it, and we've not really done anything for Jesus. Or just as bad, we are completely unprepared for when the day of trial comes, and when that day does come, we walk away. Let me encourage you to to set regular times aside to pray, to read the scriptures, to meditate on them, so that when that day comes, you have the resources you need to face the trials that are ahead. Well, in verse 40, uh, 44, rather, Jesus prays for the third time the same thing. He keeps on going, doesn't he? He keeps on praying. And when the answer is clearly no, Jesus gets up and keeps on submitting. And it's no coincidence, no, notice this in, these, in this, this chapter, how Jesus said Peter would disown him how many times? Three times. Jesus prays how many times? Three times. The disciples sleep how many times? Three times. Matthew's showing us the difference between Jesus preparing for his trial. He falls on his face and he prays and submits three times. And the disciples who are overconfident and they sleep. And we see the outcome of this preparation when the trial comes. In verses 45 and 46, Jesus chides his disciples again for their sleeping and resting. And he tells them the hour has come. So the suffering that was overhead is no longer overhead. It is now here. The hour has come. And so we're going to see the reaction now. How do the disciples and Jesus react? Well, with the disciples who are overconfident and wiping the sleep out of their eyes, we see the sinful overreaction. In verse 47, Judas arrives with a large crowd. Uh, He's got a kind of uh, rent-a-mob from the religious leaders. And it's interesting that they come with a large crowd to arrest one man. It shows, doesn't it, the fear that they have of Jesus. Now, we'll see the overreaction of the disciples in a moment, but there's also an overreaction, an exaggeration from Judas here. In verse 48, we read that Judas arranged a signal. So something to to point out who Jesus was. It would have been dark, and so a signal was helpful. And the signal was a kiss. 
Now, you didn't just kiss anybody, just, just like today. Uh, you don't do that. It, it was something for a friend or a member of the family. Uh, in fact, the, the Greek word for kiss here literally can be translated as love, love for a friend. So it, in the Midlands, I've noticed sometimes you might say you give someone a love. And that's really what Jesus is doing here to Judas. And when Judas does this, in verse 49, notice there it says, he kissed him, but the verb is literally, he kissed him over and over and over again. It, it, it was an over-the-top kiss. It wasn't just a, a one-off uh, peck. It was over and over. And it, it, it's, it, it's as if Judas is, is jumping in here with both feet into the sin uh, of the betrayal of Jesus. No half measures. He's just going for it. And brothers and sisters, that's, that's where sin can end up. It didn't begin here with Judas. It doesn't even end here. It gets worse, and we'll see that in a couple of weeks' time. But sin, when you go down that road of rejecting God's will, can end up where you jump in with both feet, and it can completely consume you. But sandwiched in between Judas and his exaggerated kiss here, and the overreaction we'll see of Peter in a moment, we see Jesus completely calm and completely prepared, don't we? Look at verse 50. He tells Judas, do what you came for, friend. Think that there is calmness here, but also I think there's irony Judas should have been a friend to Jesus. Judas acted like a friend in kissing him, but was actually the betrayer. But perhaps also we see here Judas, or rather Jesus, reaching out to Judas somewhat, giving him opportunity one more time in calling him friend. Friend, don't, don't do this, perhaps. Well, Jesus then is arrested in verse 51, and we see then, rather than calmness, overreaction in these disciples. So look at the verse there. One of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now we read in the other Gospels that that disciple was Peter. Jesus had told them this was going to happen. Jesus had prepared for it and so was calm, but Peter completely overreacts. He draws out his sword and he resorts to violence. And Jesus tells Peter in verse 52 to put the sword away. All who draw the sword will die by the sword, he tells him. Peter reckons he can get out of trouble by violence. He wants to do things his own way. But that kind of behavior never works out well, does it? Violence and anger, well, that's not the way to deliver us out of trouble. And isn't it true that when we have not prepared for trials, as in prepared as in praying and depending on God and submitting to him, when we are unprepared in this way, how we so often try and fight our way out of them by resorting to things like violence and anger. Isn't anger 
a really common response when things don't go our way. Hurting other people when we don't get what we want. When we think things should be different. How different we would be if we had the prayerful demeanor and submissive attitude that Jesus had to his Father's will. Now, Peter here, he, he, it, to get, not give him credit, but to, to recognize where he is. This is a very frightening and serious moment where he blows up. But isn't it true that the times that we blow up are so often nothing like this? Don't we blow up at the smallest of things? You know, that the car doesn't work? The children have spilled a drink? It's too noisy? I'm hungry? Or any little thing that goes wrong and we can end up like Peter is here. And we overreact at the smallest of things, let alone the big things. But again, Jesus, he isn't overreacting, is he? Notice how he is in absolute control of these events. And again, as we've seen throughout, one of the ways that we see Jesus is in control is because he knows the plan and has submitted to it. And in the final few verses, in verses 52 to 56, we see that the scripture is overruling. Uh, Notice the repetition in these verses of the scriptures are being fulfilled. Jesus says that twice in these verses. In verse 53, Jesus points out to Peter that he doesn't need the help of his sword. If Jesus wanted to, as the Son of God, he could call down from heaven 12 legions of angels. Now, a legion is thousands of men in the Roman army. Thousands. And and, and so Jesus could call down thousands upon thousands of angels if he wanted to. It is not, Peter, a lack of power that is preventing me from escaping these soldiers. It's not a lack of power that's stopping me from being arrested, it is a commitment to submitting to the will of God in fulfilling the scriptures. In the Old Testament, it was written that the Messiah would be the suffering servant who would bring God's salvation. Jesus had quoted earlier in this chapter, Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7, about the disciples being scattered because the shepherd has been stricken. If those enemies had been struck down now by a legion of angels, then those scriptures would not have been fulfilled. And the Father's will, which Jesus has just said he is submitting to, would not have been done. The scripture is overruling everything Jesus is doing. And in verse 55, Jesus points out the cowardice of the religious leaders. He reminds them that, you know, you could have arrested me at any point during this last week. We've read about this last week from chapters 21 uh, through to this point, where Jesus has been teaching in the temple courts and debating with the religious leaders. At any point, they could have arrested him. But they didn't because they were scared of the people, which we've read about Uh, In verse 5 of this chapter, they didn't want to stir up the crowds. But they think they're in control. But the timing is in the hands of Jesus. 
who is in submission to the word of his Father, which is overruling all that's going on here. He's not, uh, they, they didn't arrest him earlier on, partly because they were scared, but really because Jesus is in control and he's submitting to the Father's will. The scripture is overruling. Now Peter, he wanted to fight and do things his way, giving in to his passions. Jesus wanted to bring himself under God's word, submitting to his Father. Let me re repeat that because that's the big contrast. Peter wanted to fight and do things his way, giving in to his passions. Jesus wanted to bring himself under the word of God, submitting to his Father. And so let me ask you, what overrules your life? Is it your passions? Is it your sinful desires that rise up? Do they overrule you? Or do you bring yourself under God's word with a disciplined determination to do the will of our Father? Even when that will is hard. Even when that will is not what we might like. Because giving in to our sinful passions will lead us to misery and destruction. And following the Father's will leads to life. That's exactly what we're looking at in Deuteronomy, isn't it? Choose life. Well, this section ends in verse 56, where all the disciples deserted him and fled. They'd prepared badly for this trial. They were overconfident. They didn't watch and pray, and so they overreacted as they depended on their own self-sufficiency. And this led them to deserting Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, he understands what's coming, he prays and submits to his Father, and is prepared for the trial that is ahead. And we're going to see in the coming weeks that that trial ends with his death on the cross for all of the times that we have acted just like the disciples here. We can find forgiveness for all of those times because Jesus has died for our sins. But never forget the huge cost that brings that forgiveness. And let us thank God that he loves us so much. Well, our final song uh, expresses the love of God through Christ. And we can uh, hear these words and from our hearts say, hallelujah, what a savior. And it's true, isn't it, that he would do this for us. What a savior. And that's our final song, Man of Sorrows, what a name.
God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Amen. 